Our loving Father, we thank you, Lord, for the things that you have been showing us from your word. We praise you and thank you, dear God, for the way your spirit has been speaking to our hearts. We do recognize that we are living in very serious and solemn times. And Lord, we're just praying that you would please help us to have the mind of Christ, because there's really no other mind to have. Our own hearts, our own minds are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Please teach us not to consult it. Lord, help us to lean upon your words. And I pray that you will grant us your spirit. And may he truly open our understanding. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to pick right back up where we left off. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to look at a very important uh, quotation. And this quotation, I, I believe, is going to prove very helpful to us as we're seeking to understand how do we respond to these issues, the crisis that is right upon us? I don't believe that we need to lift up a crisis. We just simply need to acknowledge it. And then, most importantly, we need to lift up Christ to help us counter what's coming through the crisis. When I look at this quotation here, it is filled with much meaning in the book Desire of Ages, page 83. And what it states to us is, it would be well for us to spend a thoughtful hour each day in, in contemplation of the life of Christ. We should take it point by point and let the imagination grasp each scene, especially which ones? Especially the closing ones. As we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant. Now, there are some of us that are losing confidence in Christ, and one of the reasons why is because we are possibly not spending time understanding and dwelling upon the great sacrifice he made for us. Why would Jesus go through everything he went through just to leave us lost at the last moments? It doesn't even make any sense. If we really believe, because some people believe Jesus doesn't want to save me. Jesus can't save me. And we say things like that. We have to understand these are absolute bona fide suggestions of Satan. And Satan is never to be entertained. When you are taunted by the voice of Satan, did you know that we should even respond to Satan the way Christ did? Go to the book of Zechariah 3. Let me show you how Christ responded. And you'll notice that there's something Jesus did say to Satan, but then there's a lot he didn't say. And I want you to see it. When you go to book, the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, we need to learn how to respond to the voice of Satan the way Christ did. And you'll see it in Zechariah, chapter 3. And I want you to see what the Bible says as we consider Zechariah, the third chapter. And if you're there, please say amen. amen. All right. The Bible says in Zechariah chapter three, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, the Lord, what? The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Do you know that that's the last time Satan was addressed in that chapter? In other words, all that God had to say to him was the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. There's nothing for us to discuss. We must learn that when the devil introduces his thoughts to us, we have to learn how to say the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. There's nothing for us to discuss. Do not parlay with Satan. Do not have conversations with him. 
He is not your friend. He cannot be reasoned with. He is eternally and forever lost. And there's nothing that could change his circumstance. He is absolutely bent on making sure that you are destroyed with him. So therefore, anything you say to him is going to be like water off of a duck's back. He's not going to even hear it or receive it. So there's no sense in parlaying with Satan, no sense in talking with him. And when you and I get to a place where we begin to think we are so sinful and we are so messed up that even Christ and his blood is not sufficient and he cannot save me. I am letting you know those are the suggestions of Satan. Do not entertain them. What we need to do is we need to go back and dwell upon his great sacrifice for us. The more that we understand Calvary, the easier it will be to develop confidence in him and it will be constant. And that's what you and I need. We need constant confidence in Christ that he can and will do for us what we never could ever do for ourselves. Amen. Amen. All right. So it says, as we thus dwell upon his great sacrifice for us, our confidence in him will be more constant. Our love will be quickened. Look at all that happens when we spend time meditating upon the great sacrifice. It says our confidence in him will be constant. Our love will be quickened and we shall be more deeply imbued with his spirit. It says, if we would be saved at last, we must learn the lesson of penitence and humiliation at the foot of the cross. So the more that we understand the life of Christ, the more that we look at his life is the easier it will be, especially the sacrifice that he made for us, the easier it will be for us to know how to stand and have confidence in the very last scenes of earth's history. Because when we read what we read in our last presentation, sometimes, as I told you in the beginning of the sermon, Sometimes fear comes up when you start looking at the fact that, man, you know, there's just a few days before we're going to see some prophetic events probably launch into very rapid pace. That can cause fear to come up in the child of God's heart. But God doesn't want us to fall into the trap of fear because we have nothing to fear for the future, except we forget the way he led us and his teachings in our past history. So it's like never before we have to zoom in on the sacrifice. We have to study his life and look to him as our example. When Jesus was going to the cross, that was his final crisis. The cross, Calvary, was the final crisis, if you will, for Christ. That was when Satan, he had to let out everything because he knew everything's about to come to a close and the beginning of the crushing of his head was going to take place. So as a result of that, Jesus had to endure his final crisis. And there were steps that he took that helped him. One of the first things we saw is when Jesus saw prophecy being fulfilled, he preached the gospel. He and he put himself in a place to try to bless others. And what that means, that's why I said when you read Mark 1, 14 and 15, understand it. What Jesus did not do is fall into the trap of self-preservation. This is not what Christ fell into. There are a lot of people that are doing that. I got to get out of debt, even though we should. I got to get out of the city into the country, even though we should. And a lot of people do these things, but they do it with wrong motives. A lot of times they're doing it because they're saying, you know what? I got to make sure I am preserved and I am ready, etc." Now, it is not that God does not want us out of debt. We should avoid debt like the smallpox. It is not that God does not want us out of the city. He told us already, get out of the city as fast as possible. So God's words are clear and God's words are true. And we would do well to fall in line with it. And those who are following what God says know the blessings. I'm telling you right now, God knows how much city work I do. OK, and I say that not to make a single accolade. I'm just saying I'd be lying if I were to say I am not often in the city constantly 
ministering to souls that are suffering and dying in sin. And we minister them in the health work. We minister them in the proclamation of the gospel. But you have no idea how much of a blessing it is that when my wife and children and I go somewhere and we minister to God's people and when we're done and we look forward to going back to the country retreat to be able to pull away from all that the city offers in its ugliness and to get away from that and to go back to the country retreat and once again go into the quiet where we get to commune with nature and with God. For those of us who know that experience, brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, somebody's lying to you to say you have to stay in the city to effectively win people in the city. That is not true. That is a total and complete error. And there is no quotation that substantiates that. We have to understand that God expects us to come to the quiet. He wants us to get away and he wants us to get an experience with the Lord in nature and with him that we really can't get otherwise in the city. We are not told that you'll be lost if you're in the city. It's just 10 times harder to walk with Jesus. That's what we're told. It's 10 times harder. And for those of us who live in the city, including myself, I used to. I know that is true. I mean, when you're driving down the road and you got to battle with billboards, you got to tell your children, look at your feet. Because you're walking against something lewd and disgusting that some pervert has decided to glorify on a big, you know, big uh, billboard spending all this money. When we when we uh, are driving next to cars and people are playing the most vile music next to your car and you got to go through all that drama, you got to deal with the consistent crime, etc. I mean, come on, saints. There's a lot that we have to deal with when we're there. So it's not that it's impossible to have a walk with Jesus, but we can admit it is 10 times harder. It's harder. Listen. We are getting ready to embark upon the most incredible and stupendous crisis this world has ever faced. And wherever God can lighten the burden, we need to accept it. We don't need the harder. You understand that? So if we can plead with God, Lord, show me the way, open up the way, then I believe God will do it. And so it is that we need to understand, yes, God wants us to get out of the city into the country. But at the same time, there's a way we can pervert that very blessed message. And so it is that we don't want to make all these false and wrong movements to respond to the crisis. You cannot preserve yourself in the way that people are doing it. I'm going to show you a method of self-preservation that's biblical. But outside of that, there really is no other way. So, again, when we look at Christ, Christ was not trying to save himself. He was busy trying to save others. Amen. The more he saw prophecy being fulfilled was the less he thought of himself. Do you understand what I'm saying? So when you read Mark 1, 14, 15, that was the point that I wanted to bring out, as simple as it sounded. When he saw time was being fulfilled, he preached the gospel. In other words, the more that he saw everything was coming to a close, he thought less of himself. He thought more of the precious souls that don't know him. And he was busy going about winning them. If you and I are truly filled with God's spirit, we're going to have the mind of Christ. And if we have the mind of Christ, you're going to do the works of Christ, because as a man thinks in his mind, so is he. So it is that if we have the mind of Christ, we're going to do what he did. And he went about and he worked for the salvation of souls and he worked, brothers and sisters, tirelessly. Now, understanding that. When Jesus was getting ready to go to Calvary, there were some experiences that we saw in the life of Christ that I'm going to highlight very specifically. And I want us to look at it because I believe that we need to respond to the reality of the crisis as Christ responded to the reality of his crisis. So let's take a look at it. Number one, one of the first things we saw, we're going to look at all these verses here. So we're going to go to Matthew 16, 13 and 21. We're going to go to Matthew 17, 22 and 23, Matthew 20, and we're going to look at the verses. So let's go through it, because what we're doing is we're looking at the closing scenes. 
because we're told we should look upon the life of Christ, especially the closing scenes. So when we look at the closing scenes of Christ, we're going to look at here's some of the things Jesus did as he saw himself getting ready to ultimately go through Gethsemane and then to the cross. So in Matthew 16, notice what the Bible says. And I want you to see this because these are examples in the life of Jesus that he left for you and I of what we should be doing as we see ourselves getting closer and closer to the final crisis because he was getting closer and closer to his final crisis. So we're in Matthew 16. If you're there, please say amen. amen. The Bible says in Matthew 16 and verse 13, the Bible says, when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, whom do men say that I, the son of man, am? So notice, where was Jesus according to the verse? He was where? Caesarea Philippi. Is that right? Okay. Verse 21. Then it says in verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto who? His disciples, how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. All right. So we see Caesarea Philippi is the location. The message is he's going to his family. He's going to the disciples and he's going to the disciples and he's telling them, listen, I'm going to die. But when I die, I'm going to rise up on the third day. Now go to Matthew 17, one chapter over. And when you look at Matthew 17, now let's look at what he did again in verses 22 and 23. The Bible says in Matthew 17, verses 22 and 23. And while they abode where? In Galilee. Jesus said unto them, the son of man shall be betrayed into the hands of men and they shall kill him. And the third day he shall be raised. And they were exceeding sorry. So the first location he was in Caesarea Philippi, he's talking to his disciples and he's telling them the reality of what's getting ready to come. I'm going to die, but I'm going to rise up the third day. Now he's in Galilee. And as he's in Galilee, again, he's repeating the same thing. Now we're in Matthew 20. In Matthew 20, notice what the Bible says in Matthew 20, verses 17 to 21. Matthew 20, and we're looking at verses 17 to 21. The Bible says, And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way, and said unto them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. And the son of man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and unto the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death and shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him. And the third day he shall rise again. We can actually stop right there. What do we see now? What, where's the location? Now he's going up to Jerusalem. What's the message? He's telling the same thing. He's telling them basically the same thing. And he's talking to the same group. OK, he's talking again to his disciples. Why was Jesus doing this? Well, now we're going to go look at Luke 18. When you look at Luke, the 18th chapter, we're going to understand why was Jesus doing this? Luke 18. When you look at Luke, the 18th chapter, we're going to consider verses 31 to 34. Luke 18. And now we're looking at verses 31 to 34. And let's notice what the Bible says. If you're there, please say amen. The Bible says in Luke 18, verses 31 to 34, then he took unto him the twelve and said unto them, behold, we go up to where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So Luke 18's story is directly connected to Matthew 20's story. Follow that? It's the same scenario. Now watch. It says, behold, we go to Jerusalem 
And all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man shall be accomplished. For he shall be delivered unto the Gentiles, and shall be mocked, and spitefully entreated, and spitted on. And they shall scourge him, and put him to death, and the third day he shall rise again. But now watch verse 34. And they understood how much? They understood none of these things, and this saying was hid from them, and neither knew they the things which were spoken. Three different times, three different locations, Christ gave the same message to the same people, and they still didn't get it. You see that? So what's the point? The point is, is one of the first things we see that Christ did is he told his brethren the straight truth of what was coming. This was something that Jesus did. And he repeated himself often because he understood the frailty of the human mind that sometimes no matter how much you say something to somebody, there's a tendency to forget. What God wants us to understand is the more that we see the crisis getting ready to come, one of the things God wants us to do is he wants you to go to your family and he wants us to tell them the straight truth of what's coming. And you may have to repeat yourself. There is no way. That we can have brother, cousin, uncle, aunt, and, the, and mother, father, and so on. And we can honestly know they have no idea what's getting ready to come and think God will not hold us accountable for not telling them. And we cannot consider our job done just because you gave them Desire of Ages on Christmas. Just because you gave them great controversy on their birthday. No, brothers and sisters. Jesus constantly went to his family. The disciples were not just a bunch of guys who followed him. That was his family. They ate together. They lived together. They slept together. They did everything together. They were close, brothers and sisters. And Christ knew that's my family. And so the more that Christ saw the crisis coming, it was not so much that he just simply preached the gospel. You see that he went to those who was closest to him. He wanted them to understand the straight truth of what was coming and to please be ready. He knew the frailty of their hearts. He understood their weaknesses and their challenges and their vices that they were so enslaved by. And therefore, it was not enough to say it once. It was not enough to say it twice. And it's not enough to say it three times. It's only enough to say it when they finally get it. And so we need to be pleading with God that the more that we see that the crisis is coming upon us and we know we have family, we have people close to us, best friends. Individuals that have played major parts in our lives and they do not know this message and they don't make the profession that we make as Seventh-day Adventists. And we know prophetically that what we're studying is the absolute truth of the word of God. There is no way that God will not hold us accountable if we think we can pass them by while we go ahead and try to bless a whole bunch of strangers that we don't even know. God says, listen, you got to keep the main thing, the main thing. We must understand that you got to go to the people that know you because great controversy tells us a day will come where people are going to say, you knew this. You understood this. Why didn't you tell me? And I don't want that on my head and I certainly don't want their blood on my head. Brothers and sisters, whenever you get a chance, read again Ezekiel 33, one through nine. And when you read Ezekiel 33, one through nine, that is that story. Where God says, son of man, I want you to go ahead and tell my people that a storm is coming. And he said, and when we don't tell them that a storm is coming, he says, when the storm comes, oh, yes, it'll destroy those people in their sins. But Christ says, but he says, but I will hold their blood on your head because you knew and you didn't say anything. So God wants us to understand that if we're really going to respond to the reality of the crisis as Christ did, the more that Jesus saw the cross coming. 
The more that he saw his crisis coming is the more active he was in self-sacrificial service. And his service was especially to his family. His service was to his brethren. It was to the people that was close to him. Think about people that you're close to. Think about people that you know know you and you know them. Think about people that you know that I've grown up with these individuals and they do not understand this message. We've been nice to them. We've been watching them just practice sin boldly and vehemently. And we just simply would say little nice general prayers with them. We would do everything possible to not offend. Christ says, listen, it's getting to a time where you got to be more straight with your family. You got to tell them, brother, sister, listen, I love you. There's something coming. God wants us to get ready for it. God has a plan. Please just allow me to share this with you. And you go ahead and you give it to them. And then if they don't want it or whatever, all right, you back off and you let some time go by. And then when the door is open again, you go back and you say, hey, listen, I just wanted to tell you, listen. And once again, you bring it to them. Because we have to understand the frailty of the human heart. When Christ saw that these things were getting ready to take place, he was active in seeking to bring the message of salvation and to tell the straight truth to those who made up the people closest to his heart. You and I must do the same thing if we're going to respond to the crisis as Christ did. Number two, Luke twenty-two forty-three. I appreciate this point. Luke 22 and verse 43. Sometimes we get afraid when we get afraid because we're saying, oh, Lord, I don't know. This crisis is getting ready to come. And sometimes we get afraid either for one of two things. When we see a crisis getting ready to come to the people of God, getting ready to come to us, we can either get afraid for ourselves or for others. In any event, I want you to look at this principle in Luke twenty-two forty-three. When Jesus saw that the crisis was getting ready to come, this is an inspired fact of what took place. And what took place for Christ is the same that will take place for us. The Bible says in Luke 22 and verse 43, it says, and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven doing what? Strengthening him. I am here to let you know that if you are inclined, if God moves on your heart to go ahead and reach those family members and you're thinking to yourself, I don't know if they'll even listen to me. I want to let you know angels will strengthen you. Angels will come and they will literally prepare your family's hearts to hear your messages. Those of us who are involved in canvassing and call porter work, we know that we have the promise that before we even get to the door to knock on it, that angels are already there and they are preparing the heart of the person on the opposite side of that door. Is that right, canvassers? So we already know that the same way angels will prepare those people, angels will prepare our family. Angels will go ahead and already allow circumstances to unfold in their lives that what you and I believe will become relevant to them. So please understand, number one, you are not on your own. Angels from heaven will strengthen you. So even if you're filled with fear. Remember, Jesus, when he was getting ready to go to that crisis, he was filled with tremendous pressure. Why? Because he was sensing the separation from his father of which he never experienced in his existence. We don't know what that's like because most of us have lived our lives separated from God. So it's extremely normal for us to be separated from God because that's what sin does. It separates. Christ never sinned. Christ had unadulterated, absolute communion with his father all the time. And so it is that when he was getting ready to go to Calvary, it was like he was feeling for the first time separation between himself and his father. And it was literally killing him. 
That's the power of love, brothers and sisters. His love was so indissoluble for his father that just to have his father turn away from him in disgust. It broke the heart of God. Do you understand that? Jesus was, as it were, feeling the very wrath of God upon himself. That's why when you read 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where it says that he became sin for us. Do you know what sinners get, brothers and sisters? Do you read Isaiah 13? Go there with me. Isaiah 13. What, what do sinners get? Think about it. If Jesus became sin for us on the tree, then I want you to see what the Bible says in Isaiah 13. This is what all sinners get. And we have to understand what, what took place on the cross. Many a times when we study Calvary, we just think it was a bloody mess. Somebody who got beaten and bruised up pretty bad so other people could get saved. A Jewish man comes to us and says, well, your Messiah did that. My uncle, he had his skin stripped off of him in the Holocaust so that our people could be saved. So now is my uncle equal to your savior because he suffered a painful, bloody death? No, brothers and sisters. You see, there was much more that Christ suffered than we understand. It was not just this physical punishment. It was not just some anguish per se, but notice what the Bible says in Isaiah 13. It says in Isaiah 13, starting at uh, verse six, it says, howl ye for the day of the Lord is at hand. It shall come as a destruction from the almighty. Therefore shall all hands be faint and every man's heart shall melt and they shall be afraid. Pangs and sorrow shall take hold of them. They shall be in pain as a woman that travaileth. They shall be amazed one at another. Their faces shall be as flames. Now watch this. Verse nine. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh cruel, both with what wrath and fierce anger to lay the land desolate and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. So according to the verse, what is it that the sinners get? Yeah, they get death, but the death is called something in verse nine. What was it called? It was called the wrath and fierce anger of God. The wrath and fierce anger of God is what falls on the sinner. Second Corinthians 521 says Christ became sin for us. So on the cross, it was as he was feeling the sense of his father's fierce anger against sin and sinners. And that's why the father had to turn his face from his son, because that's what the Bible says. Isaiah 59, it says your sins have caused God to turn his face from you. And Jesus's heart was broken and nobody has ever suffered that. Don't we ever dare compare Christ's suffering to another man? It's not about blood being all over the place and bone being seen and flesh hanging off of one's back. Brothers and sisters, those are some of the minor points. What Jesus felt was the fierce anger of his father on behalf of every sinner that ever existed. And it all felt on one man. We have no idea what Christ suffered on the cross, brothers and sisters. None. And so as he's sensing this, he's getting to that place in Luke 22 where it's overwhelming him. Therefore, angels came to strengthen him, to encourage him on the journey. Master, don't give up. You're almost finished with the race. Keep going. They put before the master all the blessed visions. Remember the vision you saw of Elijah and Moses? Remember you saw the translated? You saw the resurrected master? It's worth it. And you know what the good news is? Jesus, the more that he thought about that, we know he went through the story. You know why? Because the Bible says, for the joy that was set before him. It says he endured the cross, despising the shame. And I often wonder, what is that joy? And the Bible spells it out nice in Luke 15. Go to Luke 15, and the Bible tells us exactly what that joy is. 
I remember I used to always hear people say, if only one person would have accepted Christ, Jesus would have gone to the cross. And I said, you know, that sounds pretty uh, extensive. Is that true? Is that what the Bible says? Oh, watch this. Luke 15. The Bible says in Luke 15. Notice what it says in verse seven. The Bible says in Luke 15 and verse seven. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be where shall be in heaven over how many over one sinner that repenteth. More than over 99 just persons which need no repentance. What was the joy that was set before him? If at least one person will receive the salvation. Christ says it was worth it. And I believe under this roof we have a lot more than one. Amen. And so it is that when we think about the final crisis coming upon us as God's people, number one, we have to remember that means it's time to give the gospel and we give it to those closest to us that we know do not know it and are not walking in the light of it. And don't be deceived, brothers and sisters, even if you have family that name the name Seventh Day Adventist, but they're not living the lifestyle of Seventh Day Adventist. They are sinners, too. And all sinners need the same thing. Salvation. I remember one time we talked about saving souls and soul winning. You see, in seven day Adventism today, we play with words a lot. And sometimes we say when we think about doing the evangelistic work and saving souls, when we say that immediately our minds think outside the church. Is that right? A lot of times when we think of soul winning, soul saving, we think the people outside the church, which by default means we are actually foolish enough to think everybody in the church is actually soul saved. So what does God do? God says, I'm going to clear that up right now. So let's go to James 5. Watch how God cleared it up. If you look at James 5, you will actually see that when you think of soul winning, there are two dimensions we can look at it. Yes, we can certainly look at it as those outside the church who do not name the name of Christ or any religion. Yes, we can look at them. But notice what the Bible says in James 5. Very, very clear language. James 5, 19 and 20. The Bible says in James 5, looking at verses 19 and 20. And when you get there, please say amen. amen. Notice what the Bible says in James 5, 19 and 20. Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth and one convert him. In other words, the people were called brethren, which means they were already part of the family of God. But what happened to them? It says, if you what from the truth? What's another way of saying erring from the truth? What's another term we can use for that? Apostatize. Very good. So he's saying, brethren, if any of you apostatize, if you err from the truth, then it says, and one convert him, meaning you're a brother, you were in the church, you apostatize, you erred from the truth. But somebody reaches out to that individual and says, please come back to the truth. How does God view that? Verse 20, it says, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the error of his way shall what? Save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. So whenever you think of the work of soul saving, it is a work that applies to those within as well as those without at the same time. That was John's message. John's message was repent ye Pharisees and Sadducees, those within, repent ye publicans and sinners, those without. John had a dual work. And so it is we as God's people, we have a dual work as well. Because John's work is our work. Amen? All right. So now, when we understand that, we need angels to strengthen us. I am thankful that we have the evidence that towards the closing scenes of the life of Christ, God reminds us, you're not getting this done on your own. 
God reminds you, I am sending angels to you. So if you're overwhelmed with your own fears and your own inadequacies and your own inabilities and you're saying, Lord, I can't do it. God says, I'm going to send you angels to strengthen you. If we are concerned, Lord, I want to reach my mother, but I'm scared to death because she knew me from when I was a little baby. And she watched me do every demonic thing that I could ever imagine. Now here I am going to try to win my mother to Jesus. Just remember, God will send angels to strengthen you. So that's another point that we want to keep well fixed in our minds. But how about this one? Point number three. In point number three, John 13 in verse one. This is a very important point here. In doing this work, sometimes you will face rejection. Sometimes people will make it known they don't want what you're offering. Sometimes people will let you know thanks, but no thanks. And they will not appreciate the work that you do. Well, I am so thankful for John 13, 1. And this also was preparatory steps towards ultimately Jesus's final crisis. The Bible says in John 13, and you remember because John 13 was very, very pivotal. John 13 was the chapter of the Last Supper. So again, this is towards those closing scenes of the life of Christ. And I like what John 13, verse 1 says. Look at what it says. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father... Having loved his own, which were in the world, how did he love them? He loved them unto the end. One of the things I like about this example is regardless of circumstances, his love was consistent. Regardless of circumstances, his love was consistent. Do you know that his love did not change not 1% even though he knew, Judas, you were about to turn me in? Is that how you cheat your brethren? When we got people in the church that we know are going to do us wrong, people who will shake your hand and tell you they love you and appreciate you and even say happy Sabbath. But these same individuals, sometimes they have a knife, a spiritual knife, if you will, and they're ready to just go ahead and shove it in the back of God's servants. The question is, how do you act towards those people? I mean, we know how to act towards the people we interpret as wheat. You know what I'm saying? If, if I feel I'm wheat and I feel you're wheat, then we have this nice little wheat conversation. We have a wheat relationship and it's all good because, you know, it's all wheat. But what about... When you're a weed. What about when I just see you walk through the door and I'm like, there goes that weed right there. I know that weed. That brother's a weed. He's a tear. He chokes the life out of everything. And when you know people that's like that, is your love consistent? Do you find that you are consistently demonstrating the salvation that they deserve? You see, Jesus was not about himself, brothers and sisters. The more that as he was getting closer and it, it's an amazing thing to study. As he got closer and closer to his own personal destruction, he thought even less of himself. And that is very different to human nature because human nature has a tendency that when it gets, you know, do you know some of the most selfish people on earth? And I, and I say this with all due respect. I want you to just think deep with me. Do you know some of the most selfish people on earth are sick people? When somebody is sick, everything revolves around them. They need help when they need it and they need treatment and they need a lot of things and all they're focused on are themselves. I am sick. I am messed up. I need help right now and I need all the help I can get, etc. And that's why I appreciate the sanitarium work, because in the sanitarium work, oh, we didn't do like hospitals do. We don't go around leaving folks in beds all day in the sanitarium. They would say, all right, Miss Mary, it's time to get up. And they would go ahead and help Miss Mary get up and they would take Miss Mary to a garden. And Miss Mary would go ahead and help plant some plants. 
Miss Mary would go ahead and do some things. And in Miss Mary trying to be a blessing to a facility or to a person, Miss Mary began to forget about herself. And in seeking to bless others, Miss Mary ended up blessed. That's why when you read Isaiah 58 and when you read verses six and seven, God says, is not the truth fast to loose the bands of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to break every yoke, set captives free, to feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit those who are in prison, etc. And after all that, verse eight, the Bible says after they do that, it says then. In other words, you do all this self-sacrificial service to others. It says, then shall thy light break forth as the morning. And the next point, and thine health shall spring forth speedily. It was like God knew the more that we get out of ourselves, even when we're sick. Now, of course, you know, we have to look at every circumstance. But if a person is even bedridden, the question is, can you make a phone call? Can you pray for somebody? We can always do something that can be a blessing to somebody else that gets our minds off of ourselves. And so it is that when we look at this, Jesus, the more that he got closer to the crisis, the less he thought of himself and the more that he was availing of himself to minister to others. And one thing he made sure was his love remained consistent, even for Judas, even for Judas. And you and I got to plead and ask ourselves, do I start acting funny with people after I've warned them a few times and they still don't get it? What do you like when you warn people and you let them know, listen, man, you're going down the road of apostasy. You're going down the road of perdition. You are going to destroy yourself. I am warning you, this doctrine is false. This 2520 is false. This feast day thing is false. This idea that there's no victory over sin and that we're going to keep sinning until Jesus comes. This new theology you learned in school, that thing is false. And the more that we warn and they don't take heed and then here it is one day they fall. Is there something in your heart that says good? Did you know the Bible says love rejoices not in iniquity? Brothers and sisters, what I'm saying to you is that our hearts are really wicked, desperately wicked. But when we look at Jesus, when he was getting towards the close, he would minister to people. And even though he knew many of them may not even receive my message, they're still going to run away from me. They're still going to scatter abroad. Yet his love remained consistent. You got to plead with God. Lord, teach me to love till the end. Teach me how to work with people, even if they demonstrate themselves as some of the worst people in the world. And it doesn't mean that you don't hold them accountable. I'm going to do a study tomorrow. That's going to be the first time I've ever done it. It's been on my mind for a long time. And it's called the ministry of rebukes. There's an example that Jesus left for us that there's a time that people need to be rebuked. There are times that people need to be addressed of stuff they're doing inside the church. And if it's a leader, even if it's a leader. Now, why did God inspire my mind for this? You know why? Because I know that this crowd right here, my Southern California crowd, I just, I just know, I know my family. You've been family with me for a long time now. And I know sometimes, like I said earlier, we have a tendency to listen to people a lot. And sometimes we do because we say, oh, there's no present truth in our churches, etc. Don't you know we got a Hollywood church where they got strobe lights and they do disco dancing and all that stuff? I'm like, yeah, I believe you. I, nothing surprises me today. But here's the point. Some of us are running to YouTube, Facebook, and we're listening to a lot of people. And some of these people we really like because they really let the church have it. And they really know how to 
call out sin by its right name. And some of us are, have become fans of these people. We send our tithe to them. We support them. We tell others, check out this video. You know, we do a lot of stuff. And some of these people who appear to be such powerful ministers are actually doing a very devilish work. They're doing a very devilish work in certain respects. And those things need to be addressed. In other words, is there a manner of how Christ taught us how to deal with apostates? Is there a time that we may even have to rebuke individuals that even might hold positions as leaders in our conferences and all these other things, leaders in our church? Is there a time that we have to address these things and stop being silent? Because while there's some of God's people that that stand up, there's some of God's people that are possessed with the spirit of cowardice. We know how to we know how to talk to each other about everything that's wrong. But we don't love brothers and sisters enough that when we see them doing something wrong, we can't go to them and say, brother, sister, listen, um, there's something you stated. Knowing this might cost you your ministry. This might cost you your ministry. There's a lot of people right now that's doing ministerial work that they're playing it very safe. And they use things like all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. You know, we, we use all these verses. We'll use anything just to try to stay silent on things that sometimes God says, no, I need you to speak up. So what that tells me is that I believe God's people don't understand the ministry of rebukes. When is it time to give a rebuke? When is it time to do it even publicly? When is it time to go ahead and address these things? And I'm so thankful Jesus gave us an example even how to do that. And we're going to look at that tomorrow. So you'll see. But my point is, is that we have to plead with God. Lord, help my love to remain consistent that even if I rebuke a brother, if I go to a brother and let him know that, listen, I'm sorry, but based on what you've done, this has to be exposed. This is going to have to go before the people. I don't know if you've ever read some of Ellen White's writings. Ellen White wrote to an elder in testimonies on sexual behavior, marriage and divorce. And when she wrote to that man, she let him know because he was practicing base practices, sexual sin. And when she wrote a letter to that brother, she literally was letting him know that this thing has controlled you. This has taken over. Etc. And then she says, I have already sent a letter to the conference about you. So while he's reading it, there's a letter that already went out where people are being warned about him. And she did it because just in case he would try to say, man, I'm not going to pay no attention to this and I'm going to go ahead and do ministry. Anyhow, she, she went ahead and gave, you know, the appropriate warnings. Ellen White knew how to rebuke people, but she would always say, dear son. She would always say, I love you. She was very balanced in that way. We have to understand that we got to know how to keep our love consistent for others, but don't interpret silence for love. Don't think that the less that I let a person know that you are going off the wrong path and you are going down a road of perdition, you're going to take a lot of people with you, man. You got to love that brother or that sister enough to let them know that and understand that, man, my love is being consistent. So when I look at this example of Christ, I see a very powerful example. All right. Going on. Matthew 26 and verse 39. One of the key principles that's going to help us in our love being consistent is found in Matthew 26. So let's look at Matthew 26 and verse 39. I really appreciate all this. These are literal steps that Christ took before the crisis came. And these are steps that we need to take so that we can follow his example, because Christ is our example. So notice what the Bible says in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, the Bible says right there in verse 39, Matthew 26 in verse 39, it says, And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, 
Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. This is purely the surrender of the will. There are times you are not going to feel what God counsels. There are times you're not going to feel to do what God says. But those are times to surrender the will. What does it mean to surrender the will? Take down these verses. Joshua 24 and verse 14. Joshua 24 and verse 14. Next, 1 Kings 18 and verse 21. Next, 1 Kings 18 and verse 21. Next, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19. Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19. What do all these verses teach us? How do we surrender the will? We surrender the will by exercising a gift that God gave to us. And it's found in Joshua 24 and verse 14. The Bible says, choose this day who you will serve. In 1 Kings 18, 21, Elijah says, how long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. You got to follow him. Choose to follow him. In Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19, it says, I present before you life and death, blessings and cursings. Choose life. The blessed gift that God gave to you and I that makes us different from monkeys is the fact that God gave us a gift called choice. It is a power that he governs you that you may exercise it. He gives it to you, but you have to exercise it. Where did I get that from? That's the last thing you want to write. Steps to Christ, page 47. When you write down Steps to Christ, page 47, you read that under the chapter Consecration. And it talks about how shall I rape? How shall I make the surrender of myself to God? And then it goes into the power of choice God has given to men. It is theirs to exercise. That's the exact quote. So in other words, God has given you the ability to choose. So there are going to be times you don't want your love to be consistent. There are going to be times you don't want to serve. There are going to be times God is going to call you to do things. Maybe walk away from some things. Because tomorrow we're going to get into sanitarium work. And when we understand the work of the sanitarium work, because there was there was a health component to the life ministry of Jesus towards the closing end that was very powerful. And God is showing us in the last days that there's a work that needs to be done along the lines of the health work and the sanitarium work. So we need to talk about that. How can we turn even some of our homes into sanitariums? So we're going to talk about that because God wants to do something about what's getting ready to come. And it has to be a practical ministry. It all can't happen up here on the desk. What we're doing right now, some people misquote Ellen White when they quote Evangelism 221 or 222, where they say preaching from the desk is the easy part of ministry. How many of you ever heard that before? Preaching from the pulpit is the easy part of ministry. How many of you have actually preached that or taught somebody that? How many of you actually preached it or taught somebody that, that preaching from the desk is the easy part of ministry? You've done that before? Please don't ever do that again. That is not what inspiration says. I believe being careful with the words of God. She never, ever said that ministering from the desk is the easy part of ministry. That's never what she said. What she talked about in the chapter is the importance of doing house-to-house work, the importance of doing one-on-one Bible work, the importance of laboring with souls, praying with them and for them, and so on. And then when she gave the emphasis of doing that very serious, what we call human touch ministry, personal ministry, she says then the preaching from the desk is comparatively easy. Did you get that? See that difference? Preaching from the desk is not easy, and you can ask any preacher. 
Any real preacher. I'm talking about preachers who preach the word of God, who preach present truth. Anybody who preaches the present truth, they know it is not easy to preach this. It is not easy. It takes several hours of studying, research, labor, etc., going back and forth, making sure, packaging it, packaging it in such a way that it can, you know, help the people of God follow. It's not easy. Don't insult this work like that. It's not easy. But preaching from the desk is comparatively easier than going in a home and dealing with somebody who's demon possessed. Preaching from the desk is comparatively easier than when you're sitting down with somebody and somebody has a right to say, what you're saying makes no sense and I totally disagree with you and here are my reasons why. And they go ahead and give you Bible verses for it. Now you got to stop what you were doing and you got to think and you got to address their questions and you need to be right. That's comparatively, you understand that? Comparatively, that's harder than just doing it up here where all you do is just look at me and stare at me for an hour and a half. <laughs> well, I can say pretty much whatever I want. You understand what I'm saying? So there's a difference. All right. So when we understand that, it's the surrender of the will that God shows us is imperative. We must learn now that when any decision we have to make, everything has to be based on the word. The reason why is because when the final crisis hits us, it's only those who have cultivated living by the word that will stand on the word when the test comes. If we have not cultivated that habit now, why in the world do you think we're going to cultivate it last minute? That doesn't even make any sense. In fact, it contradicts inspiration. Write this down. Volume five of the testimonies to the church, page 81. We are told in volume five of the testimonies to the church, page 81, the time is not far distant when the test will come to every soul. The mark of the beast will be urged upon us. Now listen to this next point. And those who have step by step yielded to worldly demands and conformed to worldly customs, here goes the part now, will not find it a hard matter to yield to the powers that be rather than suffer the dangers of imprisonment, derision, persecution, and death. So if we make our lifestyle a habit right now, ooh, new fashion, I'm not going to consult the word. All I know is I look good in it, so I'm going to buy it. That is following the customs. We are embracing the customs. When the world says it is wrong to take a position publicly to stand up against the status quo practice of sin, and anybody who does it will suffer persecution. When we begin to say we need to follow this worldly demand, and therefore, we're not going to preach about sin from the desk. We're going to start putting rainbows in front of our churches and let everybody know, come on in. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're, going to, we're not going to touch these things. We want to make our churches and our conferences friendly. When this type of language is starting to be used, what's happening is individuals are yielding to worldly demands. They're conforming to worldly customs. So when the powers that be come and say, listen, all right, we're going to establish a Sunday law. Whoever doesn't agree with it, we'll throw you in prison. If that's not enough, then we'll give you some large fines. If that's not enough, we'll kill you. There are going to be a lot of people that's going to say, that's too much. I'm not going to yield to that. Because we didn't make our lives a life of yielding. You understand that? So when we talk about the surrender of the will, this was imperative for Christ in his final scenes. It's imperative for us in the final scenes. We have to get to a place that we no longer buy anything except the word of God endorses it. We're not going to get any clothes unless the word of God endorses it. We're not going to eat any food 
unless the word of God endorses it. I'm not going to put anything in the front of me in the name of entertainment or recreation, except I first know that the word of God endorses it. I'm not going to go ahead and even do methodologies and practices of evangelism, except the word of God endorses it. I won't even spend my money, no matter how much I got. Except I know where I'm putting it is where the word of God endorses it. This is how God's last day people need to live under the exercise of the will, the surrendering of the will. Christ lived a complete life where he says, I came not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. That's why it was not as hard for him when it came to his final crisis to again surrender the will because he already cultivated that habit. You understand that? All right. Very good. Continuing. Point number five, John 14 and verse 31. Let's go to John 14. And let's look at verse 31. I appreciate these closing steps in the life of Christ. Now, please understand, this is not the end all be all. These are some key principles and steps that can be manifested in lots of other ways as we will progress in our studies. So we're in John 14 and we're looking at verse 31. And notice what the Bible says. This is after Jesus was talking about his ascension, his going away. And then he says in verse 31, He says, but that the world may know that I love the father and as the father gave me commandment, even so I do arise and let us go hence. Jesus example to us, his love for God is what motivated his service. His love for God motivated his service. You know, brothers and sisters, I am concerned when we can talk about the establishment of outpost centers and we don't even know if you love God. I meet people sometimes that come to us because, you know, what we're doing with the co-missions, our school and everything. You know, we get people all the time now, that's re- especially now. We want to get an outpost center. We want to get the blueprint. We want to get this, 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 this. And, and they want to get a lot of stuff going on. And one of the first questions I asked them is I said, do you love Jesus? Tell me why you love Jesus. What's your testimony? And I listen. What we don't understand is there's no new thing under the sun. Do you know how many outpost centers got started? There's a booklet. The property where Tacoa Missions used to be, there was a big mansion. We call that mansion Ichabod because the glory departed. It was a mansion. It was literally a facility. It was an outpost. In the 1960s, Mountain Mission. Oh, man, everybody knew about Mountain Mission. And it was an outpost. And there was a book inside it. We went through the the broke down mansion and we got to a place. We found a book. And when we found the book, we pulled, there were books in there, old books. I like old books. I'm scared of new books, but I like old books. So I went in there and I found this old book and it was a directory of outpost centers throughout the United States of America in the 1940s, 50s and 60s. I said, oh, I'm going to have a good time with this one. Started going through it. Do you know, brothers and sisters, there were scores and scores of outpost centers all throughout the United States, all throughout in those days. Today, you could barely count on one hand how many outpost centers exist. You go to the average Seventh-day Adventist, what's an outpost center? They don't even know because a lot of people, this is not their focus of study, even though this is the instrument God wants to use to finish the work. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Why so many outposts gone? Why? And many a times, brothers and sisters, It balls back to this very, very singular foundation. Self. People were giving into self and doing what self wanted to do rather than what God wanted to do. 
There was more love for self than there was love for Christ. So today you got a lot of people now. Now, now the new fad in, in present truth, seven day Adventism, the new fad is outpost centers. Everybody, oh, I want to get an outpost. I want to get an outpost. I want to get a blueprint. And everybody wants to get it started. My thing is, listen, if your heart is not an outpost, if Christ cannot find residence in your heart for real, for real, where Jesus and his love and his truth and his righteousness consumes you, God can't trust you with a building structure. God probably can't trust you with an outpost. And he tested us real hard at Tekoa because it looked our story on how we ended up with this property, if you just understood God tested and stretched each and every one of us to the core. And we had but a string of faith left to say, Father, what's going on? And it was, as it were, right at the last moment. God says, you've waited long enough. And God says, here. And he gave us the structure. And now we're ready to turn New Hampshire upside down like never before with the everlasting gospel. Amen. But brothers and sisters, what's my point? My point is, if we don't understand these principles, if you don't have a love for God, you will do damage to the outpost center. You would destroy. You'll have all the structures upright. We've had structures up before. We had people that had money and good things and all sorts of stuff. But if you don't have it, if you don't have a love for Christ, brothers and sisters, and if that is not the motivation of why you work and why you do what you do, and if any self-preservation or any of that is in it, God may very well withhold his blessings. You see, there's a self-preservation that is inspired. Listen to this. And all who would bring forth fruit as workers together with Christ must first fall into the ground and die. I want you to look at that. It says the life must be cast into the furrow of the world's need. So that's what it means for us to die. Our lives must be cast into the furrow of the world's needs. Does the world need a lot? Yes. Look at what it says next. Self-love, self-interest must perish. But now watch this. But the law of self-sacrifice is the law of self-preservation. See that? That's a whole different type of self-preservation. Satan says, I'm going to preserve myself, but I'm taking everything from God. Jesus says, I'm going to preserve myself by giving everything as God. Completely different. The law of self-sacrifice is the law of self-preservation. The seed buried in the ground produces fruit. And in turn, this is planted. Thus, the harvest is multiplied. The husbandman preserves his grain by casting it away. That's how the husbandman preserves his grain, by casting it away. It says, so in human life, to give is to live. I love that. I love that, brothers and sisters. To give is to live. It says, the life that will be preserved is the life that is freely given in service to God and man. Those who for Christ's sake sacrifice their life in this world will keep it unto life eternal. Christ Object Lessons, page 86. And so it is that Jesus understood the best self-preservation that he could do, knowing that the crisis was upon him, was the giving more of himself. And so it is for you and I that as we see the crisis getting ready to come upon us, that the best way to preserve our lives is actually to give our lives. 
The more that we give of ourselves. So that means you got to get out of self for real, brothers and sisters. Got to know how to serve until it makes you uncomfortable. Some of us serve, but we do it very comfortably. That's not the model. It's not the model that Christ left. You see, when we study on Calvary, Calvary teaches us some powerful things. In fact, I'm going to just go past this science of prayer. And I, and I want to show you this because this is very deep. This is very interesting. I told you that Seventh-day Adventists are going to be brought to the front. If ever before God has called us to an opportunity to serve, it is now. And let me show you why. You see, in John 5 and verse 39, the Bible says, search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life. For they are they which testify of me. Inspiration responds by saying, search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. Now watch this. Every position of truth taken by our people will bear the criticism of the greatest minds, the highest of the world's great men will be brought in contact with truth. And therefore, every position we take should be critically examined and tested by the scriptures. Now we seem to be unnoticed, but this will not always be. What Ellen White mean? You know, she's saying we need to study. We need to pray. We need to make sure. Do we really know Jesus? Do you really know him? Do you really know his word? And we're not talking about do you really know how to repeat statements? Some people know how to repeat statements. That's not necessarily knowing Jesus. You understand that? Is Christ truly your friend that sticks closer than a brother? In the context of all the verses that we know. So it's not that God doesn't want us to understand verses, but we have to get to a place where we know how to understand the word of God and proclaim it. And we literally are talking about our friend. Now, we're told we need to study the scriptures and we need to critically examine ourselves because now we're unnoticed. But the time is going to happen. We're going to be brought to the front. What does that mean? Well, look at this. It goes on to say movements are at work to bring us to the front. Did you know that? Movements are at work to bring us to the front. And if our theories of truth can be picked to pieces by historians or the world's greatest men, it will be done. We must individually know for ourselves what is truth and be prepared to give a reason of the hope that we have with meekness and fear. Not in the proud, boastful self-sufficiency, but with the spirit of Christ. We are nearing the time when we shall stand individually alone to answer for our belief. Evangelism 69. Now, one of the means in 2015 and onward that we are being brought to the front is right here. When Dr. Carson made the decision to run for presidency, we have to understand that when he made that decision, it had an impact on us as a people. My study at this time is not to talk about, you know, the right or wrong. In short, I would say it was wrong. I would never recommend a Seventh-day Adventist to run for president. I don't even know how he's going to answer the questions when people start asking him. Uh, we understand that your, your church believes that, you know, the United States is going to become a persecuting power. I mean, I don't even know how he would answer that. So it's like, you really got to pray for him because those are going to be the things he's going to have to answer. When the people come to him, okay, they're going to answer that. You're going to have to answer it. Now, Kenneth Anderson, he's the city of Huntsville, Alabama's uh, Office of Multicultural Affairs Director. This is what he said, and this is how I see we're going to be brought to the front. No question. Carson's campaign will definitely put the Seventh-day Adventist church and its teachings into the spotlight, says Kenny Anderson, a lifelong Adventist who is the Multicultural Affairs Officer for Huntsville, Alabama. Adventists don't have anything nearly as titillating as polygamy in their history, which Mitt Romney had to contend with from the history of the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. But 
Adventists do have a doctrinal interpretation of the Bible that points to the Catholic Church and the Pope as the Antichrist. That is an earthly power that arrogates to itself authority that rests only with God. So he makes it clear this is a position that we hold, and that is true. And these are the things that's going to come up that somehow, someway, he's going to have to reconcile with that. So keep our brother in prayer when it comes to these things, because it's going to come to him. And my hope and my prayer is that he'll stand for truth, even if it means he has to surrender the campaign. Amen. So what we're seeing is that, like never before, people are going to want to know, who are these Seventh-day Adventists? Who are these Seventh-day Adventists? And do you know the secondary argument that I believe is going to bring us to the front? It's the homosexual movement. You want to know why? If I had time, I would show you. I do it in our trainings. I have video footage, video footage and articles where consistently, you know the argument that the gay community keeps bringing to the Christian world? The gay community, to a very large degree, believes that the Christian world is preaching a hate message. But I always wanted to understand. That's why they keep saying love wins, because they say, you know, you guys hate, but we love and love one. But watch this. I started trying to understand, say, how do they interpret us as a hate religion? And one day it was like the spirit of God just gave me extra special attention to, to listen to the argument. Here's what they stated. They stated the reason we know that Christians are a hate religion, the, these Christians that are fighting homosexuality. They said the reason we know it's a hate religion is because the same Leviticus that says Man shall not lie with man, and the man that does that is an abomination. They said that's the same Leviticus that says don't eat shellfish and don't eat pork. And they were specifically quoting Kirk Cameron because they were commenting on Kirk Cameron's statement when Kirk Cameron said that homosexuality is unnatural. So they said this is why we know it's a hate religion, because if you go to these ministers and say, do you eat shellfish? They're going to say, absolutely. They're going to say, wait a minute, the same book and the same chapters you're quoting to tell me that my lifestyle is wrong is the same book in the chapters that tells us shellfish is wrong. Then they said also the same book in the same chapters. They also talk about not wearing jewelry. This is what they brought up. They literally I got the article. This is what they're bringing back to the Christians. They're saying, you Christians are hypocrites. You're preaching hate speech because if you really wanted to uplift the Bible, you take off. And they said you take off your wedding rings. If we were in our missionary training, I'd show you those articles. But come to the November class. Amen. Listen. They said, but you got that wedding ring on. The same Bible says no wedding rings. In other words... What they were doing is saying the Christian community are a bunch of hypocrites because they're picking pieces of the Bible. Now, guess what? Let's be honest. Doesn't that sound like a legitimate argument? Unless they come in contact with a movement that has a position on shellfish, that has a position by precept and example on jewelry, including wedding bands. That has a standard on tattoos and all these other things. Is there such a movement that exists? Yes. The world is ripe for what we know. The world is ripe, brothers and sisters, for what we know. God has given us the solution, the keys to the problems of this life. We know how to direct people to safety. We know how to direct people to the truth. And we know how to do it in a way where it is unyielding. 
And so it is that when I look at the life of Jesus, I see a life that he's showing us. These are the solutions to the problems of life. We're going to be brought to the front. This is our time to let the light of Christ shine. That men and women will see our good works and glorify our father in heaven. And I would be remiss if I did not show you this last point. What was another thing that Christ found himself deeply within as he was coming upon the crisis? Luke 22. This will be our last text. Luke 22. Jesus is our example. In Luke 22, as he was coming upon the crisis, Luke 22 I want you to see what the Bible says. In Luke, the 22nd chapter, consider verse 44. You see, the more that Jesus saw himself in an impossible situation. Jesus was at a place that you and I need to get to as quickly as possible. Very quickly, just bear with me, like two, three minutes and I, I should wrap it up. In Psalm 77, 13, the Bible says, thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary, right? Did you ever look a few verses down in Psalm 77? It says, uh, it's like verse, Psalm 77, 13, probably Psalm 77, like uh, 16, 17. It says, thy way, the way of God is in the sea. Is that verse 19? Thank you. Excellent. Thank you. So notice in, Amen. When we look at Psalm 77, 13, thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. By the time we get down to verse 19, we see thy way, O God, is in the sea. And when you look at that, you're saying, what do you mean in the sea? And that's when we learn that it was talking about the Red Sea. Because it talks about how God led the children of Israel as they were going through the Red Sea. Now, here's where I thought was beautiful. The way deals with a path of salvation. The path of salvation in the sanctuary. The path of salvation was seen in the sea. The Red Sea represented an impossibility for man to save himself. There was no way they could save themselves. Behind them was Pharaoh and the army. In front of them is this Red Sea. And what they needed to see was the way of God. God was able to make a way out of no way. And so thy way was in the sea. So you see the way of salvation in the sea. The children of Israel got to a place where they saw, I can't save myself. You and I must sooner or later get to the place that you finally realize you can't save yourself. There's a lot of problems in this life where we try to save ourselves from it. And we try to do different things that we can to try to make things work. But when it comes to this crisis, there is nothing we're going to be able to do to save ourselves. There's no effort. There's no work. There's no move. There's no method. There's no preaching. There's no nothing that we can devise in and of ourselves to spare us from what's getting ready to come, this final crisis. So we have to understand this final crisis as a great Red Sea. We got to see it as that so we can see the way of God that he's going to do something for us of which we cannot ever get accomplished for ourselves. Christ, when he saw the cross, he could not see beyond the tomb. It was as it were, the Red Sea was in front of him. Christ now has come upon something that he is sensing so much pain, so much wrath, so much separation. He's sensing everything that is overwhelming him that the Bible says it began to cause blood vessels to pop. And now blood is mixed with his sweat. 
What did Jesus do when he saw himself in what appeared to be an impossible situation to bear? Luke twenty two forty four. The Bible says, and being in agony, what did he do? He prayed more earnestly and his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. We must learn to agonize with God. We must get to the place to realize, Lord, I can't save myself through this one. There is nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can devise. There's nothing that I can conjure up. I lean holistically upon you and I am putting my full, complete, absolute trust. I got to hold on to the cord because now there's not even a ground under me anymore. All I can do is rest everything on this cord that's going to be able to take me through the final scene of the journey. And if we get to this place through agonizing, not simply for everybody else, but realizing like Isaiah, woe is me. Woe is me. Do you really see yourself as wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? I'm going to be honest with you. I can't say amen as fast as you did. Now, listen, we're not to compare each other to each other. I'm just telling you the truth. You said amen very quickly. And if you're really there, then good. But I know that I'm a pretty hard headed guy. And I can only imagine I'm thankful that God doesn't get headaches because I would imagine I would have caused many. I constantly see myself frustrating the gospel. I see that no matter how much I'm thinking that I'm yielding, it's kind of like Pastor Doug. I really appreciate a lot of the things that he stated earlier. He's being very honest. He's being very straight up. And sometimes ministers get put on these massive pedestals. And you guys sometimes treat us like we are really holier than thou. And we got struggles just like you, like literally just like you. And we don't always do every single thing that God says. And we feel bad about it. But I realize, Lord, I am giving you a very hard time because I still kind of think in my mind, I got some things figured out and I know how to get this done. And sometimes I don't yield as quickly and as fast as I should when it comes to the voice of thy spirit. And so if you're there, good for you. I pray that you stay there. But I know for me, it's a real struggle, brothers and sisters. It's a real struggle to really see yourself as really wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Because when I read Christ Object Lessons, Christ Object Lessons says that we could be speaking about our heart poverty while at the same time our heart is swelling with its own conceit. Don't forget, our hearts are deceitful. Desperately wicked. So we know how to say up here, oh yes, we must surrender all to Jesus and but sometimes we can give God a really hard time. My hope and my prayer for each and every one of us is that we will look carefully at the life of Jesus. Watch how he responded to the crisis. And just in case there's one person in the room, you know, you always got some deep present truth heads that are going to say, oh, this brother didn't say nothing about victory over sin. Don't worry. <laughs> I am reserving that specific point for the ministry of rebukes. So when we get to the victory over sin message, because you better believe if we're going to get ready for this final crisis, we must let Christ and his righteousness uproot every sin from our hearts. So please understand, I'm not neglecting it. I'm just dealing with it point by point. God wants us to understand there's a great work to be done in us. 
and there's little time in which to get it done. And I think the first thing we need to realize is, is really how unrighteous, unholy, and how wretched and miserable, poor, blind, and naked we really are. And I'm sorry, but even for those of you who said amen, I don't believe you. I really believe, I believe that we don't understand how deceiving, how deceitful our hearts are. I believe, brothers and sisters, that we, we got some very serious struggles that we need Christ and his power and his love and his righteousness to uproot that thing out of our hearts before it is eternally too late. And so it is that by the grace of God, I'm just simply going to ask the question that if you can honestly say, you know what? I'm looking at the pattern, man. I'm looking at Christ and I'm seeing examples. And maybe even in some of those examples, we're not up to those things yet. And if we're not, brothers and sisters, we need to plead with God to do something for us. that We cannot do for ourselves and we need a higher level of cooperation with our Savior. And if you know you need it, you recognize you need it, then I'm invite you to stand to your feet with me so we can pray together. Tomorrow we're going to be talking about the health work, sanitarium work. We're going to be going over uh, principles for doing an evangelistic cooking school. And then we're going to close out with the ministry of rebukes. And we're going to see some wondrous things out of the word of God. Brothers and sisters, time is almost finished. And the question is, do you and I reflect the lovely image of Jesus as we should? Said the angel unto the prophet, get ready, get ready, get ready. We will have to die a greater death to the world than we've ever yet died. If you think you're dead, we don't understand death yet because my Bible says the dead know not anything. And some of us are still very much alive. Self is very much alive. And we need to ask God to do something in our hearts so that we, by his grace, can really be a changed people. I'm going to kneel to pray. I know there's dirt on the ground. You may not want to do that. But in any case, let us reverently bow before the Lord. Father in heaven, Lord, we're asking that you would please do whatever it takes to open our eyes and help us see our true state. We are desperately blind. We don't understand our true condition. And our heart keeps lying to us. And we are constantly having reinforced in our minds that we're all right when really we're all wrong. Lord, I pray that you will please give us a true understanding of our condition. But we're so thankful that you're not just going to leave us there. Once you show us, Lord, we need you to draw us to you. And we need to find our only safety and our only security in Christ. And it will be manifested through a life of absolute and constant obedience. And it won't compromise in not one area. For some of us, Lord, that seems impossible. Because we've lived our lives compromising in just one area. But I'm praying that you will please remind us through the example of Jesus Christ. That as he went through these final scenes. He engulfed himself in ministry. And in doing this, he was preserving his own life. Lord, I pray, help us to understand this very simple yet deep science. And help us to work as Christ worked. I pray, dear God, for each and every one of my brothers under the sound of my voice. Lord, there's many people that are going to be swept away. We're told even the majority in the church are going to turn their backs on the third angel's message. I'm praying, dear God, 
Let not this small company under this tent be counted amongst that majority. Help us to be faithful even unto death. And then and only then shall we receive our crowns of life. Thank you, dear God, for hearing our prayer. And also thank you for answering it. And Lord, while you're blessing others, please don't pass me by. I am praying for myself, for my precious wife, whom I love dearly. For our four children, dear God, these gifts that you have given to us. Father, we as parents, we have failed so badly when it came to training our children. Many of them today, if they were given the freedom, would probably never come back to thee. Please, Lord, teach us how to teach our children once again. To show them how to love you on their own. And how to follow you and to serve you. And I pray this, dear God, for every home under the sound of my voice. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org. Dot org.